Hey everyone, welcome back to Lee to B, the Sassu's podcast for B2B. I'm your host, Lee Moskowitz, and today's episode is a bit different than usual, but very interesting, and I'm so excited for this. So coming to the mic today, with passion and purpose, we've got Ross Murray, Vice President of the Glad Media Institute and a driving force in LGBTQ advocacy. He is a member of the 2021 Out 100 and was named one of Mashable's 10 LGBT rights activists to follow on Twitter. He secured national media interest in stories of LGBT equality with a focus on the intersection of religion and LGBTQ issues. Ross brings unique insights, making waves on outlets like CNN, MSNBC, and a whole lot more. Also ordained as a deacon, he's on a mission to bring LGBTQ and faith communities together. Get ready for a conversation that sparks change and challenges the status quo on Lee2B. Hey, Ross. Hey, thank you for having me here today. Yes, I am so excited to talk to you. And I am not like your average person to talk to because I didn't grow up Catholic. I am not Catholic or religious in any sense. But me I either. saw... I'm not Catholic at all either. <laughs> Um, but I, I saw your I, I saw your post, but I am jumping way ahead uh, before I, I, we even get into that that fun stuff. I would love to just for you to I'm sure hopefully most of my listeners are familiar with Glad and, and Glad Media Institute. But could you just give a little quick overview for my listeners? Sure. So Glad is a LGBTQ strategic media advocacy organization. When we started, it was the height of the AIDS crisis the news coverage of people that had this at the time kind of unknown disease was horrible. It was blaming victims, making light, making fun and not taking people's lives into consideration. And so GLAD started as a protest movement against that, against local New York City papers. And there was a separate movement that was also working in Hollywood for was then gay and lesbian inclusion in like the film and television industry. Those have sort of merged together now to become what GLAD is, this media advocacy organization. We've been a watchdog. Um, we've been an organization that realizes how much media impacts what people know, how they think and how they feel about the community. And those things influence their behavior. So like a parent accepting their child, coworkers treat each other well, students not bullying each other, how people vote, how what businesses decisions make um, about whether they want to incorporate pander to avoid the LGBTQ community, right? All of that gets influenced by fiction, television, film. And then of course, as we've evolved, one, the movement has absolutely evolved. We're not just gay and lesbian anymore. And so, and we've also gotten to be much more proactive. And now there are so many more media outlets, right? We are talking on a video platform that is going to be turned into a podcast. Social media now exists. Um, there are so many different things that influence people and what they think and what they know about the community. And so our work has now changed there, which is why the Institute was formed to try to be proactive about that, teaching activists how to use the media as a tool effectively, teaching companies and corporations how to be the best kind of ally for the community. And of course, still back to those traditional media, helping reporters and screenwriters and directors and filmmakers and, and whatever also be able to tell stories of the community. So that's kind of what GLAD is. And that's how we're situated sort of within the GLAD Media Institute. Yeah, that is is so important. And you'll jump in because I'm preaching to the choir here, but it's so important to get these stories out there not just so we're always seeing this stuff, but because it's so for that that kid who is in some town where he does not have any other positive positive sources or resources or characters and books that are similar to him. But when you see somebody who is similar to you or that there's a positive story about in any kind of media, that changes that changes a person's world. It makes a huge difference in how you see yourself yeah. and encourages you. And then it also starts to influence the people around you too, because some people, you know, it can be hard. It can be hard for a parent to relate to their child if they think their child is suddenly very different than who they are. But then weirdly enough, they will relate to a fictional character and realize like through this fictional character, now I have a window into the world that my child is in. Right. Which is why we need those, that representation to be accurate and inclusive and diverse and expansive 
Yeah, and I think for for a lot of people, the first one people might think of is it's Laverne Cox, for example. Um, many people, I mean, that, and that was pretty early on, but a lot of people still now they don't know a a trans person in IRL in real life in person, right. they'll, but they'll see that in media. And I think uh, Laverne Cox's role in Orange Is the New Black, yeah, she was a prisoner. But she wasn't a, a drug addict. She there was she wasn't a prostitute. She wasn't, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's it was it was important that she was just another female inmate who happened to be trans, and that was the story there. And I think that was really powerful for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, it really was. It, and there's been so many kind of milestone moments like that for different parts of the community. Glad was you know Glad was founded by Vito Russo, who did the Cellulite Closet, and you can watch a 90s version documentary, The Cellular Closet with Lily Tomlin. And then just, what, three years ago was a film called uh, Disclosure, Trans Lives on Screen, that does that same sort of trajectory of transgender representation, basically since the beginning of the moving image, up until, let's say, 2020 when the film came out. Yeah, so... So that that's glad, and again, hopefully everyone didn't know that. But so your role, and you've been there for quite a while, and you've worked your way up. But so you're a vice president now. What does your your typical day or responsibilities look like? I laugh because I have no typical day whatsoever. So nobody has a typical day anywhere. But yeah, yeah let's hear it. Um. So yes, I've been I've been there now for twelve and a half years. Uh, my original job was director of religion, faith, and value. So I was all religion all the time, which makes sense given all the other stuff that I do. Um, but things change, things grow and evolve. And so I led and directed a lot of different programs, religion, um, one point news, global work, the U.S. South. Um, and then when we formed the Institute, we kind of put all that expertise together. So I still do a lot of work with religion. I still do a lot of GLAD's international work and tend to lead the international work. And then um, we've added in that like corporate, I don't want to say corporate consulting, but it really is. It's both how to help them be the best allies they can be, and then sometimes push them to be the allies that we need them to be in a particular moment too, has been part of my portfolio. And then a lot of training and work with local grassroots LGBTQ organizations so that they can influence local media so that people have a sense of who their who their neighbors are. Um, but I also get thrown weird, wild projects. I'm like also civic engagement and go do um, you know go work with these elected leaders or do it. It's been wild. This is also why I sort of say like no two days are the same, and I sort of jump from thing to thing. Yeah, but that that's good though. That keeps you on your toes. Then yeah, um, very much so. So. So a big part of of what the Media Institute and I know your role is doing is is media training. And I, I worked at a PR firm. I was leading the digital side of it, but I worked at a PR firm. So I know how important media training is. Um, and for a lot of my B2B listeners, especially in SaaS, media training is, is just not a familiar concept. It's like, oh, I'm the CEO. I'm just going to go talk about this and we're going to issue a press release. Uh, could you do a quick... Uh, like, what is media training for, for our listeners? I mean, media training really is making sure that you know what you want to say and making sure that you get to say it. There, There's interview prep, right? There's like, okay, what do I want to say and how am I going to do that? There's a little bit of an understanding that we are friendly with reporters, but we're not necessarily friends. And we also have to be aware that we're on in front of them. And so anything that we say, we should assume is going to get like, put in print, right? Or do you want to put put on big billboards or skywriting that everyone's going to see it, which means everything that we're going to say has to be really intentional. And that also, that includes the stuff that we want to say proactively and also realize, oh, we're going to get asked some questions that maybe are going to make me not want to talk about things or make me, I don't want to answer the premise of the question. What's the way that you get around that? And I joke, you know how like you hear interviews and then you like listen to interviews with politicians and then you complain like they never answer the question that they were asked. That is exactly what I teach people to do, right? So <laughs> I will do it for LGBTQ advocates that are really working toward how do you make sure that people understand what's at stake for the community, what you're doing about it and what people can do to join you. And if you get asked other questions that try to pull you off of what your expertise is, saying a nice version of that's not my expertise or it's folksy, but 
I don't know much about that, but what I do know is, right, bring it back um, for, let's say for some, an actor or a performer who's um, kind of going to be in the public eye for the first time, or because of my religion work, I have a perverse specialty that I've done a lot of training with people who have been fired from Catholic schools um, for coming out, getting married, transitioning. Again, how do you want to talk about yourself in your life? You are representing a bigger community. And I want to help you realize what media attention is going to mean, both the good and the bad that will come with that, and how to make sure that you are representing yourself, your story, your situation well. And you're also protecting the stuff that doesn't need to be like flashed in front of the family. Right? People think about, oh my goodness, my children, my family, my home, I live in this community. Sometimes, sometimes my media training is helping people realize that maybe they don't want media attention. Um, and to respect that, right? And to try to help, try to help others respect that too. So media, even media training is sort of like very broad. It's a little trying to help people figure out what you want to say and knowing that you're always representing more than just yourself. Yeah, it's it's kind of like when you're being cross-examinated, uh, you're a lawyer. You never want to ask a question you don't know the answer to. When you're on the stand, though, like that's you're going to be asked questions that <laughs> you're not expecting. So it's kind of the same thing of the rehearsing scenarios. Um, a reporter is much nicer than the lawyer examining you because, you know, they're there to, you know, get a story out. Um, but, yeah, it's it's just honestly one of the first things you need to do if you're serious about any type of PR is identify who your spokespeople are going to be at the company. And again, it's it shouldn't always be the CEO uh, mm -hmm. for many reasons. Uh, but then have that person have that media training. And, and it's so important. Yep. And there's a variety of different gifts, right? We do, we'll do these trainings proactively, you know, in a, we did one in Las Vegas. We just did one in Kansas city. We're planning some next year in Wisconsin and Tennessee and Michigan and Florida and Arizona. And, you know, anyone can show up to do the training. Not everyone's going to end up on CNN. Right. And, and some people realize, Oh, I'm better at writing. I'm a good op-ed person. I'm a good social media person. Like it's fine to get these skills because these skills are good one-on-one -on -one, small groups, like any of that kind of stuff. And so, you know, not everything is going to be, I'm sitting down for an interview like you and I are doing, but you're also thinking, who are the people I'm trying to reach and what do I want them to do? And how do I get inside their brains and their values and the way they see the world so I can explain things so that they will get it so that ultimately as an advocate, they will do what I want them to do, um, vote mm -hmm. a certain way enact a policy, treat their kid well, right? I don't know what the ask is. People have to do that themselves, but we can say, this is how you always go back to what's important to you. Yeah. Um, so media training is obviously important in, in the business sense. You want your C-level people to have it, but it's really important when it comes to marginalized groups like the LGBTQ community, mainly because they don't have the resources as, as other people do. And they have obviously different challenges to think about. So how is it how is it different and why is it important for a marginalized group like LGBTQ people? One big thing with marginalized groups is also to recognize for the most part, especially, you know, media is an industry in and of itself. And so marginalized groups often are more talked about than get to talk to represent themselves, right? There's a lot of like, let's talk about the LGBTQ. Let's talk about people of color. Let's talk about like what those people, I don't know if this is audio, if I'm doing a lot of air fingers, if those people should do or what they need, right? Um, which also means every time that we do rep go into the media, we are representing ourselves, and yet we're also still representing a bigger, broader community of people that aren't us, right? Mm -hmm. And so what are the things that I, you know, you, we have to think through, what are the things that I'm doing and saying that's going to be authentic and true to me, Ross Murray? Um, and then what are the things that I can say that are generally true about this gigantic, diverse community that's, you know, that's not going to agree with everything I say? Um, and, you know, just knowing representing ourselves well isn't enough. We also end up being, maybe for some people, the first or the only or the, you know, whatever experience they're going to have that they can relate back to their own life too. Um, and so that's what's really important. And, you know, in our trainings and um, the stuff that we do through the Glad Media Institute, we will do this work to help people uh, 
think through, again, that target audience, who needs to learn from me? And then how do I relate to them? How do they get to see me not as different or other or completely separated from their lives, but someone that's like someone that they know and care about and love um, because we share similar values by being Americans or Minnesotans or or whatever it is. I, I talked to a lot of you know people in the community. A lot of them, they're just like, I I want to be the CMO. I, I don't want to be the gay CMO, or I want to be the um like super savvy social media person, not just the gay per- social media person at the company. So I I've got into like people like they tried not to talk about those issues, or sometimes they will, but then other times they won't, and they just don't want to be pigeonholed. So I guess kind of just more. How do you run into that? And like, what are your your thoughts on that? I mean, one of the things I always make sure that we talk about, and glad we'll do this externally too, you know, LGBTQ people are complex people with complex lives, right? And there is more to me than just my sexual orientation. There's more to me than just my gender identity. When we're working with, you know, when when the entertainment team is working with fictional characters, scripts, are you writing one dimensional characters that only exist just to be the gay person in the room or just right. to be the trans person? Like, um, and in or can you write characters that have something else going on in their lives, have a career, have a family, have things that they're concerned about that are not related to sexual orientation or gender identity? And then it's also true for us that do that work through, um, you know, interviews and news is is, yeah, we are. We don't want to be like the asterisk behind I'm the CEO or the CMO, the gay one. You want to also you also want to highlight your skills your values, why you are the right person for the right job at this time. And I think one of the things I often do when I'm kind of working with individuals is help them to remember and to sometimes remind the people that are doing the interviewing that, you know, there's that, that, that they are more than one thing. And one thing I often tell media journalists, and we've gotten better about this. I am very tired of firsts. Um, and I want to just say we are we can be past the first whatever because every time we go back to the first one, probably the first that we know about because we lived hundreds of years of people not being able to share about themselves honestly mm-hmm. and publicly. And first now kind of imply there's something particular or special or sometimes does, sounds like there's an asterisk behind their name too. Um, and say, you know, I'm really proud to be in this position. Here's the work that I'm going to do because this is what my job is and i'm good at my job and i always like what's the way you remind people of stuff like that we were talking about a little entertainment and it reminded me that i saw it's a very big deal that the emmys uh is it the governor's award is that what it's called i mean one of the realities that i have got i <laughs> have you gathered i'm not so much on the entertainment side of things so i'm like okay the emmys i've heard of those i'm the odd person at glad that like doesn't know pop culture very well um and so okay. sort of bumble along did you know who laverne cox was when i mentioned her i did but i had met her personally before i knew that she was an actor (laughs) okay well she was she was an activist that was part of the trans march that i went to that one time nice okay um so uh and uh and she's she had worked with glad for a long time i think even before i'd started there so the history kind of came through working with her emmys anyway yeah i think the governor's award is not, you know, it's not always given and it's, you know, it's kind of like that sort of special recognition that really talks about sort of long-term impact. And I think the really interesting thing that we talked about since this was announced yesterday for us when we're recording this is it recognizes that long history of work that's been almost 40 years of sometimes, you know, complaining, watchdogging, having to um, correct mistakes, point out what's wrong, coach, lead, guide, help these stories to be told in a really good way, sometimes friendly, sometimes pushy, um, in order to have that representation be good for the community and also demonstrate how it's good for the industry as well. And so and it gets moved along by so many different aspects. And we talked about this. Glad puts out reports that talk about representation in television um, and film. And we have the Institute that also provides this like, great, now you've seen what your numbers are. How do we help you 
get better scores, get better numbers. Where is that underrepresentation? And we can guide you to the people that can help tell this story. Like it's building that. And I think that sort of recognition, you know, it's not just for me. I'll be honest, yesterday this was announced and we, I was in the office and we walked around and every meeting I would greet people with congratulations on your Emmy. We were all like, we are all individually getting an Emmy, which is not true. Glad, glad as an organization (laughs) is getting one, which also means there's 37 years of employees and volunteers and board members and people that did this for such a long time that also get to be part of this recognition. So it's not even a one-time thing. It's sort of like watching this history come together, which I think is really incredible. Yeah, that that is so incredible. And yeah, and it was I my mean, first step I get... to an EGOT for advocacy. Yes, yes, <laughs> the first letter in it. So I, I do want to get on to some of your books because somehow you find the time to. You've written one book. You've been a part of two I've others. Two books. You've written two books already. Okay. Oh, so because it's already out. The second yeah, one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, so yeah. So you've written the one book that's already out, contributed to to others, and then you have it's coming out in May. The, the other one, right? It's already actually the out. other one came out this last May. So they're both out. Oh, now. okay. So they're both yeah. out now. We can buy them. So this one is called the one I'm going to focus on because that's the, the newer one. Uh, so this one's the Everyday Advocate, Correct. and I this is this is honestly one of the posts I saw, and I just thought it was so interesting. So I guess what's, let's just start with some of the one of the, what's one of the key concepts from from the book that uh, even if I don't read the full thing or someone doesn't read the full thing, what's a, a key concept from the book that that you believe is crucial? Yeah, I mean, at its core, what the everyday advocate is about is there. How do I word this? I, I mentioned there's a lot of shit going on in the world. There's a lot happening, um, mm-hmm. and I think with everything that's happening. It is very easy for any of us to just feel this like overwhelmedness of it's all going bad all at once. And also this feeling of helplessness. I can't do anything about it. Um, And I will say, I think our media system does make some of this stuff like even compound it of like it's beyond. And, and, you know, even when you think of what's happening right now, it is things that are happening in other countries far away. It is things that are happening even in cities like DC far away for laws in the United States. And so it can feel like I feel this general unease and it's bad. And I'm sitting here, you know, in my home, just freaked out without an action. And so what I wanted to have, and for me, when I get that feeling, I sort of have to turn to what is the thing that I can do? Um, And that was what this was designed for. It's designed for people of faith, Christians, pretty largely, because um, that's the world that I come in. Um, and it is trying to help them think through what their sphere of influence actually is. And then what? how do you organize yourself to say, this is a thing that I can do? And I will say, when I was writing it, we did a little like workshop thing with some friends. And my husband does some advocacy stuff too. And woman said, advocacy, is that the thing like you stand on streets with a bullhorn yelling at people? And I was like, okay. And the soapbox, you know, yeah. It, yeah, and it's sort of the like, what are all the tools that we have to try to enact change in the world? And yes, sometimes we need to hold signs and yell into a bullhorn. And sometimes, and, and I confess, I don't like stuff like that. I tend to avoid a lot of rallies. I tend to avoid a lot of protests. I will do it if I absolutely have to, but it is I would rather do other things that I think can advance a cause and helping people to think through that advocacy is these quiet, small group conversations. It's the letters to the editor. It's the meetings with your representatives. It's those phone calls you make to your representatives. It's wine clubs with your church friends so that you can talk about the news and also process what you can do about it too, which I think is, um, which is what I want people to do is feel like there's empowered and hopeful and moves them into some kind of small action that isn't adding on to their life and all the things that have to do, but also becomes integrated as a lifestyle of what they do. Yeah. And again, so I, we're going to get into it in a bit, but uh, not not a subscriber, but I, I think it's so important for, again, the Christian children, young adults, actual adults who very much find their faith important to them 
but don't necessarily, again, have those representations of this is a book from a Christian gay leader about how to embrace it. So I think, what, again, coming from that community aspect, things like that are, are so important. And I know another part of, of what you're focusing on there is how to be a daily advocate. And yeah, I think that's kind of what you were saying. Where like, yes, you can do it in, in maybe not a sign every day, but maybe in your church group or in your Slack groups or, or stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, it really is. You know, <clears throat> I think sometimes the other thing that happens that's a barrier for people is we have these like larger than life legendary figures in our head. We think of like, well, I can't be Martin Luther King Jr. And you know, we're now so many generations removed that like we kind of forget that he was a real person who actually did have struggles and you know probably made compromises and bad choices. Well, I have a lot to say or... to that. <laughs> I have a lot to say to that because MLK has been whitewashed almost from oh, yeah. a, a certain point of view to make the, the socialistic actions quieter and yep. more of his just like, let's all work together. So I, I can rant there, but I, I oh, cut yeah. you off. Sorry. We, we've done that to <laughs> Jesus too, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. that we've got, you know, we've got, and so, yeah, we, we create these figures, be like, well, I can't do that. And part of it is going to be, yeah, we're going to like, we're going to have to. And I also think the other part of this is a little bit of reclamation. The other reality is when you think of, when you think of Christians doing activism, you probably think of a lot of stuff that is not lined up with my values, right? It's not LGBTQ affirming. It's not affirming for women, for people of color, for marginalized groups, right? And there's, there's been this like political tie-in. I don't want to like make the case of like, not all Christians are conservative because that's not my point. My point actually is I need more people to be acting in a particular way. So that, that starts to, for the reputation of Christianity, our own church, like there's that too. Um, and how we're able to live that out in our daily lives, motivated by our faith, but also knowing that we live in a world that is political, that um, is capitalistic in nature, right? And somehow we still want to figure out how to do good things in that world. And we get that motivated by our faith. And also we don't have to do it alone. I think the other thing, this relationship of like that young kid who's, you know, feeling isolated until they see a version of themselves on TV is also, I think these things happen in the wider world. And we sit at home just sort of thinking like, I'm the only person who cares about this. I'm the only person who thinks this way or feels this way. Um, and I want to encourage people to find each other if they can do it through their church, that's great. And there are also really great organizations that are secular, that are probably more effective than our churches are, let's be honest. Um, and your faith motivates you to work with these groups or join them and be a part of them and do the work that they're doing, which is why I can be a Lutheran deacon called to do ministry at a secular advocacy organization like GLAD. So... I understand very, and we're going to get into a segment, but I understand very little about the differences in Christianity. Uh, could you tell me to our listeners that, like, what Lutheran is and what's the difference yes. between the others? Should have said Christian. Yeah, I mean... Hmm. No, yeah, I, I, so I was going to ask this either way, because okay. I asked my boyfriend to help me with questions, because his family's Catholic, so he's like, ask about okay. that. Yeah, so, I mean, so you've got Christianity, and I'm trying to do this without doing an entire history lesson, because we don't need that, but uh, a big chunk of folks are Catholic, which is kind mm -hmm. of the group that sort of, like, grew out of that, like, post-disciples of Jesus, kind of turned into the church, which then turned into an institution. Like most institutions, there becomes some problems, some corruption, and after about, about 1,500 years, um, then um, other groups said, you know what? I don't like this process of thinking. I don't like this process of acting. One of those people was Martin Luther. Um, and he was a Catholic monk. Um, I remember him from AP Euro. Yes, yes. He yes. had the, the Luther documents and he nailed it to a door or something. Yes. On Halloween yeah. night. I so, um, And so on in 2017, 500 years to the day, I dressed up like Martin Luther and walked around with a sheet of paper and a hammer in my hand for Halloween because that's when he did it. And, you know, here's the ways that I think that we should reform or make the church better. So um, the Catholic church leaders did not like that. They excommunicated him and then they're being sort of a following after Luther. And then here's what also happened since then. Every little like difference that people have with each other, like kind of like breaks off and branches off. So now you have this like wide range of Christian denominations um, in the United States. I always think this too, through my like when you think Christian, you either think Catholic or you think like evangelical. Um, and they're the ones that have gotten 
they've grown over time. Evangelical group has grown over time in a lot of different ways. They have found a way to make their voices very dominant in American discourse. Um, Lutherans are 4 million members in the United States. So, uh, you know, a significant number, but definitely not the biggest. Um, and so when I'm at GLAD thinking about who has the most influence on society, it might be, I have to figure out how to work with Catholics, how to work with evangelicals, or at least use the language that people are familiar with that so I can talk in a certain way. So, you know, there's a lot of different branches of Christianity. Most of it is confusing minutia. <laughs> um I so I've learned that and this just my it's anecdotal, it could be different for other people, but typically when I pass a church and there's a rainbow flag outside, I find that they're episcopal. There yes, there's a lot of um there there's sort of this brand of we call them like mainline Protestants that about 10 or 15 years ago, like went through a process where a lot of them had like anti-LGBTQ policies. The Lutheran Church did. Um and there were groups in all of them that were working to change that. And for a bunch of them, it sort of happened around that same time period. So the Lutheran Church that I'm a part of had a ban on clergy and deacons who were in same gender relationships. Um, and I was part of the organization that worked with congregations and a whole study process and a vote that ultimately it was an eight year thing that led to a vote that then changed that policy past some understanding of human sexuality that is Good, not great, but good, um, better than it was. And we've been able to live into that since then. So the reason I'm a deacon is because that change happened, but that also happened with Episcopalians, with Presbyterians, you know, and other denominations. And there's some that are still kind of struggling through it right now, just globally, like the United Methodist Church is probably going through what I'm calling a conscious uncoupling um, between folks you do know pop culture. Them. You do know pop culture. That's Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin Coldplay. Yep. yep. Yeah, She's classic. facilitating that for them. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, well, this is the perfect time to segue into my segment, Spill the Tea with Lee. The juiciest podcast for B2B is here, and we're going to get sassy. Uh, okay. So we're going we're gonna to dive in, because we're, we're hinting at it, but like literally what we're talking about, and, and you're going to correct me where I'm wrong, Historically, Catholicism and, and just I'll say Christianity again have have not had the best relationship with LGBTQ and rights. It's been pretty notorious. Where where is that role of religion? Actually, let me ask a better question here. What's what's the current stance from the Catholic Church? Because I was trying to figure it out. Because I was like, okay, the Pope is saying it's not a crime anymore, but he's also kind of saying it's still a sin. Like I can't tell. So what what's the stance? Yeah. The, so this is the the Catholic Church is one of those instances. One, you know, we're, so we're talking about a two thousand year old institution, right? Um, that again started as like a band of ragtag band of people and now like turned into this like very formal institution um and along the way um i also have to say this is also part of the history too we can talk about religion like in and of itself even the history of christianity of like how christianity moved from <laughs> what is present day israel palestine to have its center of power in rome also like shows this shift and there's a whole historical thing about how that center of power like moved away from the Middle East, where it actually was founded to become a very European European thing, um, and probably paired a lot with European white Western colonialism as well. And so, when we say like the the, it's hard. It's a chicken and egg thing about was the church condemning of LGBTQ people, or was the culture, and which one reinforced each other because the two of them were so wrapped up together. Um, and so, yes, that's been part of the history with the Catholic Church. There is a line somewhere in their official church teaching that uses like the language intrinsically disordered. Um, and uh, and a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff flows out of that. Um, and I think one, there's always been groups that have been working to change or challenge that or be a part of comfort for um, for LGBTQ people that are in the Catholic Church. There's groups like Dignity, New Ways, Father Jim Martin's done a lot of stuff through outreach, his group. Um, and sometimes those groups have made advances and sometimes they've had significant setbacks. Um, I think right now they're in a spot where Pope Francis is very pastoral. He doesn't like that people are being harmed. And I don't know if he's 
he might want to challenge church teaching again. He can't just do it by by fiat, but you know, it's the thing that he starts to question that, and then also says, "Well, we also have a you know, we also have a teaching on the like sacredness of life, and if someone is being killed, executed, murdered for being LGBTQ, that's wrong." we should be opposing that, right? And so we start, We can start to like strand and say, here's where the harm is happening. Does that mean that he knows and understands everything about transgender people? Probably not. He's an 86-year-old man who's, <laughs> you know, learning stuff. Like, think of like your grandparents, like how much to explain to them. Okay. But I think trying to work that system, and they're also right now in a process that has been, we should be listening to what people's feelings and interactions are with the Catholic church so that we can start to adjust our teachings to meet the needs of people. And they, last year they had a process where they invited people to like do these listening sessions and they wanted non-Catholics there. They wanted women, they wanted LGBTQ people. Um, and they just ended last month, this like synthesizing all of that into some kind of document from around the world. So imagine like, you know, people from Los Angeles, California, and people from Ghana, and now trying to reconcile all that together. I've heard the final report is not doesn't change a whole lot, but it's also not necessarily the end of the process. And Pope Francis made that process, historically that process has always been cardinals and bishops, old men um, making these decisions. And he intentionally chose women, lay people, um, and made you know, and and some people complained, like, well, why are we hearing from these people? Uh, but I said, no, you're all going to sit in a room, and like, you're, I'm going to make you cardinal listen to this woman that's been marginalized for so long. Um, and I, so I think it's in process. It's going to take a lot to do, but that's where they are. So if if I was a a gay Catholic, how can I tell which church is is, is a friendly church? And which one is a church that maybe maybe they're not even anti-friendly, but it's like a hush-hush thing? Yeah. How how do people find their church, literally? That's a really good question. Usually it is by reputation or word of mouth. And part of the reality is that might be priest-dependent. And if your priest retires or gets replaced, a new one who comes in might have a very different stance than the old one. Um, so I can't even give you a definitive list that's going to last for all time because I've I've seen some really open and accepting places in the past that once they changed their pastoral leadership, then they stopped being um, a, a welcoming place. So that's which is why I really recommend things like Dignity, New Ways, Outreach, like those kind of organizations for information, community, um, sometimes even worship, um, and they might be able to tell you where to go or Dignity, in their case, they provide mass and worship for people that don't think they can be anywhere else. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, that makes sense, too. It could be like dating, you know, you go to different churches yeah. and see which pastors are... I, I, I'm going to stop myself before I say something. But uh, we didn't even touch on your, your nonprofit yet. So I'd love to just give a little shout out to your, your nonprofit yeah. and talk about that a bit. So I 20 years ago, my goodness, founded The Naming Project. And this is like my background is in youth ministry. Um, and it, it's still what I really like care about through all do you play the guitar? I do. Not well, but yes. But have you been the youth minister, like playing the guitar in a circle? You can find a documentary about our first year of this queer <laughs> church camp that we run. And I am playing a guitar and singing by a campfire poorly. <laughs> and every so often we'll like, pull my, we'll pull it up. And my husband will just like imitate me singing by the, by the campfire and what he thinks I sound like. <laughs> it's not pretty. Um, yeah, so we, you know, it's this youth ministry. It's a church camp. People went to Bible camp. It looks like that, but it's super queer. Um, and the program is kind of, um, you know, we still work a theme. We do a Bible study. We got arts and crafts. We, there's, you know, swimming and canoeing and all the like camp type stuff and games. And it's also a place for young LGBTQ people to remove themselves from the stresses of their communities and homes and schools and jobs and pressure, and even having to figure out who they are and kind of getting to be like in another space around other people that are also, you know, going through this with folks that are like themselves. And, you know, that's who am I? Who did God made me to be? What do I believe? 
and and again, what's my sexual orientation? What's my gender identity? You know, if you we we've had this, so we've had campers who've come multiple years, and you know, their transition is a very long process, right? And so campers will come, and one was returned says, "So last year you all called me this. This year I'd like you to try this." And very apologetic, like I'm so sorry. I know that you like know me from this other day. We're like, it's fine. We'll do our best. You know what we'll do, and. Then they said, at the end of the week said, I needed to try that. That wasn't the right thing, but I needed to hear what it sounded like being called that. You can't do that at school. You can't yeah. do that with your family or at your job, um, but you're with us for a week. So yeah, sure. Try it out. And if it's not who you are, now you know that rather than like having everyone feel like, oh, you're changing your mind constantly. Well, that, and, and that's also um, too, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's the yeah. cue an LGBTQ. That's that's mm-hmm. what that Q part's for, the questioning. Yeah, yeah. It lets and it lets young people just feel that affirmation of who they are as a creation of God who deserves to live on this earth and in the midst of the rest of this creation, um, as a whole healthy person, um, and grow up, right? I, you know, I'm again I'm a Christian, I'm a youth minister, I'm a deacon. I have a really strong belief in in God, and I want to share that with others. I don't do it in a really like gross proselytizing way, but if I can do it where I can create an environment where people can kind of figure some of that out themselves, I feel like they're going to be a much more stable, grown up, spiritually rounded person. I mean, I'm gonna, so I'm going to ask real, real direct. Okay, so I, so what I know from Jesus, and not a lot, is that. His principles were very about inclusive, and if you're rich, give it to the poor, and treat everybody nice, and all that stuff. And I I know you can't answer this, because who knows, but you have a great perspective, obviously. Where did the turn from, wait a minute, gay is bad, come from? Because it's not in the Bible. Uh, Jesus never preached that. First of all, Last Supper, they were all men, just saying. Um, so, so yeah, where did this come from? Why, why, where did this happen? I mean, I kind of mentioned before that, like, shift from, it's the institutionalization, I think. And this is my, my take on it, right? Like, we go from, like, we have a, we have a person, a figure, um, and, They've lived, they walked, they talked, they taught people things. They sacrificed themselves, right? We have a whole story about like death and resurrection. And this is partly like what we be- why we believe what we believe. And then we have followers that the first generation says, oh shit, what are we supposed to do now? We're in charge. Um, and so they kind of, they have to come up with these questions and do this. And, you know, and it, even before then, right, Jesus was a rabbi um, and and was was a Jew. and so. You can also, and also challenging probably the institutionalization of what was the rabbinical code, life, culture. Like, are we that concerned with what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink? Is it, are you, is the worst thing you can ever do is have shellfish or, you know, whatever. Um, And challenging some of that of like, why are you putting yourself in a position of power? Why are you trying to ask questions that are trapping me? Um, And so, you know, Jesus kind of does that. The followers have this like, well, now we have to. And of course, this is human nature. It happens again, right? Like we have to answer these questions. Yeah, I think you know this. I have a podcast of my own called Yes, Jesus. Very, mm-hmm. also very- Oh, liberal. I was going to ask about this. Yes, because we- you have, and I'm going to say it now because you have Damien from Mean Girls on there. Daniel Franzese. Did I say it yeah. right? Daniel Franzese. Yeah. That's where I Southworth. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we just got picked up by World of Wonder. So we are going to be part of the World of Wonder family. We're excited about it. Um, uh, yeah, and I we made an episode about this. Do you know what the first fight of the Christian church was about? Like, what do you think would split the church in the early, early ages? Oh, I want to say like food or clothes. Penises. Wow, okay. Even obvious, because they're all men. Okay. Was it and circumcision or something else? It was circumcision. Okay. And okay. so it's a conversation. And again, this is, these are the, because first of all, this early group, this is kind of this thing. They don't think of themselves as like, we've left Judaism to make something else. They kind of, again, there was an era of like, no, we're, we're Jews who also believe this Messiah. And at some point there was kind of a break there. And so then mm-hmm. there's this debate of like, can people become Christian unless they are actually Jewish first? Um, is, was Jesus and the followers only meant for Jewish people in community, or were they also meant for these Gentile 
pagan other people, other lands. That's a debate, right? So do we have to make people go through circumcision so that they can become Christian? And it was, I lived through this own fight in my own church about LGBTQ people. It was such a debate that they had to have a gigantic meeting and kind of vote on it. And some people got angry and left and walked away, right? Uh, You can see how that can morph into our LGBTQ people. Um, You know, can we let them have a life in the church? Are they going to hurt us? Are they like, I feel like, and this is probably way reductionist and someone's going to call me on it, but I can see a parallel between those two like fights happening. And I understand the LGBTQ fight because I look back and see that first fight happening historically. Not to take away from what you said, but I'm just picturing like a really funny movie or like a Hamilton style play where it's just that debate of of like to cut or not to cut uh, on their penises. You know, I'm like, hey, Jesus uh, is dead now. Let's talk about penises. If anyone <laughs> is going to write a screenplay or a script about this, I'm on board. Yeah. <laughs> to cut or not to cut um, is a great <laughs> title. <laughs> uh, um. So we got to Yes Jesus. I'm I'm glad about that. Uh, how did that get that to happen? Like with especially with da- with uh, I should say his real name, but he's always Damien for me. So how that happened with Daniel? It was Daniel Francesi's idea. Um, he called me and pitched it to me as something he wanted to do, and I think it came from he was doing interviews and talked about the fact that he is a Christian and he still lives that out while being an actor, you know, Damien Eddie from looking um, and, and also very real pro-sex, non-slut shaming. Right. And so we also, Mm -hmm. I think he wanted to build a show that let people, let people be that faithful and that irreverent at the same time. The other thing kind of happens in Christian churches is we always feel like we have to be on our best behavior, right? Like we dress up nice for God. Like God doesn't see us everywhere same else. Same thing in our with, life with too. Jewish people at synagogues. Yeah, yeah, same yeah, thing. Yeah. And you, you know, and, and, and like, oh, well, we're going to be like super nice to each other in church, even if we're nasty to each other the rest of the year, the, the rest of the week. So having this conversation like, well, why can't I? And this is your question why can't I swear, right? Why can't we talk? Why can't we make jokes about sex and uh, drugs and rock and roll? And why can't we do all these things? And so we're going to have a conversation that is deeply faithful and yet really irreverent and probably talks the way that most people talk when they're having a conversation with their friends. But it just sounds like a Bible study then. Yeah. And so this is, this is part of what I'm wondering too. And this, this goes to media training. So in in how should I phrase it? So in the LGBT community, there is often like a negative perception of religion, or like it's a cult, or they're anti. And then on the religious end, there's also some of that portion of again being anti-gay. So when someone is gay and religious, I feel like it's probably hard to talk about that without at least alienating some part of your fan base or audience. How do you help people walk that line or figure it out for themselves? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of the negativity about religion, especially organized religion probably comes because people have had a bad experience with it. Right. And they're wounded and don't want to go back to the place that wounded them, which is completely understandable. Right. I think, honestly, I think for myself, I would, it is only pure luck that I had a really good pastor when I was a young person and coming out and was wonderful and accepting and also kind of realistic about how the world worked. And so like, you know, he was very accepting, but I was like, Ooh. and he was pessimistic. I don't think these rules and policies are going to change in your lifetime. Like you should prepare yourself. Like he was, and, and I get it. And he was very happy to be wrong. Like when these rules and policies did change, he reaches out to me to say something. Um, and so, you know, people are talking out of, out of the experiences that they've had And, and so if you are both of those things, I think I want people to be proactive about how they talk about their faith and their identity. I am not Christian, but I'm gay, or I'm not gay, but I'm Christian. Like it's an, and they are both part of what makes me the person that I am along with being like tall and white, dashingly good looking or whatever else. (laughs) And so you know, these are aspects of what makes me me. And to try to deny one part of that actually diminishes me as a person a little bit too. Um, and 
I don't want to be, I don't want to be one of those fake Christians that acts a particular way. Um, I mean, I know how to be good and professional and not raise a ruckus, but at the same time, I'm bringing my faith into the rest of my life. Um, and I'm bringing myself into my faith as well. Again, I can, I have, so, I, again, I learn so much because this is a world in terms, I'm so passionate about LGBTQ rights. Religion is uh, not my forte or area expertise. So I've learned a lot on, on this too. To, to wrap, and it could be on the positive note, final question, what is a myth or something you would want to just expel for people who could be in this community but aren't? Okay, to, to really make this like land for LGBTQ people, there is no binary, right? This is the, you can be all the things. And we are big enough and complex enough that we can hold a lot in ourselves, sometimes things that even feel like they contradict one another. And that has to do with your sexual orientation, your gender identity, your religion. I mean, I hate to admit it, your politics. All of this can like fit together in you and a person. And it's not like one thing dictates anything else. And we need to start, this goes back to this feeling overwhelmed. We need to start understanding and feeling the nuance that exists in the world and how there is no thing that is 100% good or a thing that is 100% bad. Actually, this is Lutheran theology too. We are 100% saint and 100% sinner at the same time. And that those are both part of what make us who we are. And we accept that, which then can free us from having to feel like I have to be the perfect whatever, because we're never going to be perfect. Um, but we're still going to do and act in this world, which means talking about ourselves, calling our senators, recommending the naming project kids, right? To, it can be anything like that. Yeah. I just uh, preached at the very end. No, that was, I mean, I got goosebumps. I'm not even in, in a, a clergy um, <laughs> congregation. So uh, thank you so much, Ross. Before we wrap up, I want to shout out your books where people can buy them. And then thank anything you. else you, you want to call out before we wrap. Yeah, no, please. The, I'm excited that the Made Known Loved book comes out of the naming project. Like how to do LGBTQ youth ministry, which I feel like then leads into how do we do advocacy to make the world better for LGBTQ people? And then projects like the naming project, check it out if you know young people that would do want to explore that faith and sexuality. And the um, the Yes Jesus podcast is fun. It's irreverent. It's not for kids. Um, <laughs> but you get to, uh, but I, I, I love that I get to like put my energy and my creativity into so many different types of things. Amazing. Well, yes, definitely check those out. Thank you, Ross, so much for being here. And thank you, everybody, for listening. I will see everyone for another episode of Lee to Be next time.